This is The Guardian. Ey, die neuen McPlant Nuggets. Probier mal. Die schon pflanzlich sein. Mega lecker. Mm, und der Burger erst. Ab jetzt ist bei mir jeder Freitag Flexi Friday. Du weißt schon, dass es Donnerstag ist, oder Hase? Ach, da bin ich flexibel. <lacht> der McPlant mit pflanzlichen Patty und die knusprigen pflanzlichen McPlant Nuggets von Beyond Meat. Neu und nur bei McDonalds. Ist was du likest. Bitte Zubereitungsinfos beachten. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. It's the international break. Remember, you can't have any nice shiny tournaments, even in despotic lands, if you don't steal yourself and concentrate on the qualifiers. Well, I guess you can, but the players can't and we can't. So it'd be nice if you listened. England go to Italy for what is presumably Gareth Southgate's last attempt at glory. Will it be 3-4-3? Has he oiled the handbrake since the quarterfinal against France? And how different or not will they look on Thursday night? We'll do some other international stuff before celebrating the return to the Premier League of Roy Hodgson. Does Steve Parrish only have one number in his phone? Or is this an inspired choice? Also today, Susie Rack joins us after a BBC investigation accused some of the Afghan women's team who escaped to the UK of not being proper footballers. We can chat Champions League quarterfinals with her too. All that, plus Paul Watson's stories of football in places we haven't really been focusing on too much. And of course, this pod is under constant Antonio Conte voice note watch. So you may have just heard one, you may not. We just don't know. All that, plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, uh, Paul Watson, I mentioned you in the intro, so it's lucky you're here. Hello. Yeah, yeah, that would have been really awkward if I wasn't, wouldn't it? Um, and with my rural internet, you never know if I'll be here or not. So it adds a sort of nice bit of suspense to, to the equation. Yeah, marvellous. I look forward to it. Uh, Barry Glendening, welcome. Hello, Max. And hello, Mark Langdon from the Racing Post. How are you? Hi, Max. Yeah, I'm good, thank you. Uh, Christian says, is this the worst international break ever? No tournament in sight, nothing at stake, crunch time in the league and in Europe. Can the panel sell it to me? Go on, Baz. Uh, I'm quite excited about this international break. Um, Ireland have uh, landed themselves in one of two groups of death, along with uh, France and the Netherlands, who I'm sure will be absolutely bricking themselves at the prospect <laughs> of having to face Stephen <laughs> Kenny's men. England are in quite a tough group and have two tough games to start, Italy and Ukraine. I personally have a feeling this this group might not go so well for Gareth Southgate. Uh, it's a, the dawn of a new... Gareth Bale's era for Wales. So their fans will be looking forward to this uh, campaign with a mixture of excitement and trepidation bordering on dread. Um, things are looking quite good for Scotland, who are in a, a nice little group with Spain. And they have the the safety net of uh, a playoff guarantee if things don't go well for them. And Northern Ireland, I'm I'm struggling to big things up for them but uh they're in with what denmark finland slovenia kazakhstan and san marino they might finish above san marino but michael o'neill's back in charge there and look how well they did under him during his last reign so have i sold it to you yet max do you know what i mean i think it's worth saying officially that i didn't tee you up for this question i was very much expecting a kind of 
I don't care in like in a sort of classic <laughs> Glenn Denning style. This is perhaps we had the all new Ronay a few weeks ago. Perhaps this is the all new Glenn Denning. I am suddenly I'm complete. I was invested before, but now I just cannot wait. <laughs> um, let's start then with Italy, England. Um, I guess the big story from the squad mark was um, Ivan Tony being. Picked, as you suggested last week, the chance of this happening was zero, I seem to remember you suggesting. Uh, yes, I did say it might age badly, um, and it did. Um, I, I'm pleased that he's in. I, I've, I've, you know, I, I was championing um, Tony's inclusion, but just felt that the off-field um, issues would prove too much, and I'm glad that uh, they haven't. I think he is the, the best alternative to sort of Harry Kane as a, a sort of natural kind of Front man, Marcus Rashford, although injured um, for these games, I still think he's better out wide. I know there are some people would, would disagree with that, but I I like him in, in that wider position. So I think that Tony is the best um, sort of backup to Harry Kane. He offers something um, different in terms of uh, the physicality as well. Um, can play up front on his own or or in a two. Um, the one that sort of surprised me most was Calvin Phillips. Uh, he's somebody I'd, I had almost forgotten uh, about entirely until I saw his name um, on on the England squad list. I think he would be very fortunate um, to to still be in. I know there was all these, you know, Harry Maguire had this leading up to the the World Cup, um, but I just think if if you're completely if you're not playing at all for your club I, I just think it sends the wrong message to be involved in the um, England national team I guess it's good Paul talking about like how exciting this international break is or not but Italy away may not be a fascinating game when we sit down to watch it but it is exciting on paper isn't it I'm I am I'm you know it, it makes me more exciting than going oh we're home to Poland again I'm going to sit through a 2-0, two, two goals in the second half, some booing at half time, and that's it. It, it is. Um, we have to try and forget those Nations League games. So I, I had that same emotion. I thought, oh, in, you know, England, Italy, this is exciting. And then remembered the the sheer misery of those two Nations League games, the 1-0 defeat and the 0-0. I'll confess, Paul, I have completely erased them from my memory. It's very like, important you do. Absolutely completely erased them. It's very important I mean, you do. Right. Was that the Nations League? We lost, we got absolutely hammered by Hungary. Is this clear? Yeah, yeah. So right, they were right, basically right. dead. Like, the, for us, they were pretty much dead rubbers. I mean, pretty much everything was a dead rubber in that tournament for us. We were useless. But what's interesting for me, I think, is hearing Roberto Mancini talking about Italy's squad. And I, I don't think I've ever seen an Italy squad with so little striking threat. Certainly with no striker in there that you're like, oh, God, we've got to be careful of. Because, you know, Federico Chiesa, not not like an out-and-out striker so much, but definitely a goal threat is out. And then you look down the ranks, and Italy are calling up um, Matteo Retigui, this this um, player who's played in Argentina his whole his whole career. He's, he's qualified by maternal grandparent um, to play for Italy. He's having his first cap. He might well start. You've got Willy Nyonto from Leeds. Um, you've got Scamacca. I mean, who, who are you going to... Who are you seeing the goals coming from for Italy? They've barely got a striking option who's got a senior Italy goal. So here seeing Mancini, it was very interesting, his press conference, he's basically saying, all right, all the Italian clubs are progressing well in Europe, but we don't really have any talented Italian players. It was a really interesting thing to watch. So he's coming into it looking very, suddenly very flat, I thought. Um, and I was kind of surprised in a way he's still even there after, you know, failing to qualify for the World Cup. So if England are feeling a bit like maybe we should have started a new chapter I'd argue that maybe Italy should have done too, really. 
In terms of um, things that will age badly, when Willie Nonto scores a hat trick, uh, <laughs> a second half hat trick in this game, <laughs> will get you back on. That's interesting, actually, Mark. The, the state of Italy, which I was—I mean, we'll, we'll get to England in a minute, but you do echo what Paul is saying. Yeah, well, the, the joint top scorer is Benucci in the squad with with eight goals. Uh, somebody has taken the odd penalty, and you know, he's, by virtue of the fact that he's played 120 games, he sort of chipped in with eight goals, and so there is a clear lack of, of striking options, even when you think to um, when they actually won um, the, the Euros, um, you know, Immobile, big question marks as to whether he was ever, um, you know, truly international um, quality. He's had a couple of, when, when he's played at sort of bigger clubs, if you like, around Europe, it hasn't quite worked out for him. He's sort of always found a home at Lazio. He's out injured. Um, Belotti was the other option up there. Um, doesn't play every week for Roma. And so, um, I, I suppose from that point of view, they managed to win a Euros without having kind of that outstanding forward um, that you would sort of normally associate, I suppose, with, with a tournament winner. But it does look particularly light on options at the moment. But I think that is the, you know, that is international football really in a nutshell. You, you do have, you sometimes get this weird situation where you have three great goalkeepers and no centre forwards or a team of midfielders and you just have to find solutions. And Mancini did manage to find those solutions um, at, at the Euros. And uh, I, I like their midfield still, Verratti, Jorginho and Barella. Um, it's still a lot of quality in there. It just whether they've got that sort of firepower and whether it will have to come from one of the wide players like a, a Berardi or Politano um, who, who's playing for Napoli. Um, but there, there isn't, and there isn't a Christian Vieri um, in this team, that's for sure. Nor um, you know there was a time when they would Italy were debating whether it should be Totti or Del Piero in, in the ten. Um, you know that's gone, but I, I just think international football is more about just functioning well um, as a unit and you know, nicking a goal from somewhere more often than not. Barry, do you envisage Gareth taking the handbrake off this time around? Uh, no, uh, because that's just not something he's seems happy to do. I, I could, again, this could age incredibly badly, but I, I feel England are not going to have it all their own way in this qualifying group. Uh, Ukraine are something of an unknown quantity, obviously. We're talking about the inclusion of Calvin Phillips. You know, is it right that a player who isn't isn't playing at all or barely getting any minutes being in the squad? I thought the omission of Ben White was very strange because he's playing superbly for an Arsenal team that are top of the league and has been left out of the squad. Now, we still don't know why... Well, I certainly still don't know why he left the World Cup squad, but... This suggests there's some sort of clash of personalities there with, between himself and Southgate because I can't understand why a manager as loyal as Southgate tends to be would leave out Ben White if he's playing well for his club. So that's an interesting uh, omission. And I, I can see this game ending a very boring draw. Do you think, and if Paul, if, if Rashford is out... Does that make it pretty obvious that it'll be Saka and Grealish? Considering that Grealish is playing more than Foden is for City, or or might that be might Gareth go with Foden? No, I'd I'd expect to see that. I'd expect to see Saka and Grealish. I've yeah, I think I think to be honest, and this is always the way when when Southgate's um picky a squad, there's an awful lot of people who he could pick, 
but I I don't think there's anyone who he has to pick, and I, I think that's probably what what he'll do. Like you say, there's there's all sorts of names, as with any England squad announcement, all the names that are thrown at you are, well, why didn't he pick X, Y, Z? But in reality, I think he's picked a fairly solid squad. I think it will be exactly the kind of match that Barry described, and I think it will be nil-nil, and I think someone might nick a goal from somewhere, but it's there's a very limited set of variables here. We've seen both these squads in action pretty recently, and we saw pretty much what they're made of. I don't think either of them have got any ace card to play, really. Um, and I think if you chucked in an unexpected name, I don't think it would make a huge amount of difference, to be honest, to the to the actual layout of the game. Although, Mark, it is Jude Bellingham's time now. Yeah. Um, I, I mean, I think that is the exciting bit, really, that Jude Bellingham is somebody that the World Cup, I thought he was the best young player. I know Enzo Fernandez won best young player, but I... And then uh, that's, I suppose, just natural because Argentina ended up winning the World Cup. I thought Bellingham was the best young player at the World Cup. And you usually have this lull, don't you, after a sort of World Cup two-year wait before the Euros. But actually, and this is one of the reasons I'm quite excited by the Euros qualifying campaign, it's like it's not that long away, really. Um, you've got, you know, it's almost 14, 15 months until um, the European Championships start. And, you know, Bellingham will probably get his future sorted out in the summer. So, um, you know, he hopefully will pick the right club if he if he does decide to move and can just continue on that upward uh, trajectory that um, shows no sign of, of slowing down. I mean, he's been outstanding for Borussia Dortmund, their rise up the Bundesliga this season. He's, you know, he's more than just a player to them, a leader um, in, within the team as well. And, I think him and him and Rice is is the the basis of a very solid central midfield for England going forward. Barry, Reese James and Ben Chilwell are back in the squad. I mean, they could play wing back, and Luke Shaw and Kyle Walker could play either side of probably John Stones, which would mean like a really nice balance. If not very centre backy, but Luke Shaw has played centre back before, and Kyle Walker can do that job. But it would mean no place for Harry Maguire. Or do you think Gareth is so loyal to <laughs> Harry Maguire that he will? He will be there galumphing around. I don't know. I, I suppose history suggests he may well be there galumphing around. I, I'm not sure I'd, I'd have a particular problem with Harry Maguire being in that England side. Obviously, he's not playing too often for Manchester United. He has his critics, to say the least. But it would would you have a problem with him being in there as an England fan? I'm all my vent, my entire vendetta energy is spent on Fraser Forster, of course. Yeah. But, um, <laughs> uh, um, I wouldn't necessarily, but I think actually, I think because Shaw has played so well at centre back for Manchester United, and I think he's playing really well. I think him on the left of the three gives a really great balance, and him and Chilwell is nice. I would probably play Reese James, and then I think you play Stones in the middle. I don't know if you agree, Mark. I mean. Even the most diehard Spurs fan can't make a case for Eric Dyer in the middle of the three. No, well, I suppose you do, the only case you could make is that he, you know, that is his position at, at club level, and that uh, you know Manchester City. I mean, he can't always nail down exactly what formation they're playing. The players seem to move around a lot, but you wouldn't call it a natural back three. And Harry Maguire plays in a back four, so I think that would be, and so does Gay. So that would be the argument for Eric Dyer, but um, it wouldn't be particularly strong. Uh, and also, and also, sorry, Mark. It's also it's worth pointing out that you know while the Man City players do move around a lot, the Tottenham players really don't move around a lot. So we know he really is. He really is a centre in the middle of the three. <laughs> that is true. Uh, I mean, Harry Maguire, I'm going to get to sort of cliche alert here, but I mean, Harry Maguire has 
really very rarely let England down. And actually, in the World Cup, you know, that wasn't the reason they they went out of the quarterfinal stage. There was, there was a lot of pressure on Maguire going into the tournament. But he actually, I thought he played reasonably well. Um, you know, in and, and so Southgate absolutely trusts him. I wouldn't mind um, playing Shaw and Walker either side of Stones. I think that is quite exciting and, and would help England progress the ball up the pitch um, sort of more smoothly. But I would be surprised if, if Maguire was left out just because Southgate has been so loyal to him. And even in goal, I mean, Jordan Pickford, the amount of times he could have dropped Jordan Pickford, and particularly now with Ramsdale playing for the team that's top of the Premier League, and yet he, he doesn't. So I think we kind of, as Barry was saying earlier on, we, we just know really what England do and what Southgate does. And um, he's not. I don't see him changing now. San Marino hosts Northern Ireland. How are San Marino shaping up, Paul? <laughs> There's a question. Um, I don't think Northern Ireland will be trembling, um, put it that way. And in fact, one of the biggest problems I've got with San Marino is trying to work out exactly how many games it is now without a defeat. Uh, without a win, sorry. Without a defeat, it's not any. Um, I think it's 127 games without a win, which dates back to 2004. Right. And the worst thing is they had two friendlies or three friendlies that they set up specifically against non-European opposition so they could get this win and get it off their back. And they didn't win any of them. They drew nil-nil with the Seychelles. Who they against? So they played the Seychelles. Yeah, okay. who, and this was a depleted <laughs> Seychelles team who had travelled right. from like... Was that, where was that? Where was that? Where was that? That was at, at home. home. You can't say the Seychelles is a tough place to go. No, no, no it's a lovely... Place. I've never been, <laughs> no, but really not. This, this yeah. was the Seychelles team that came in on a flight the night before, looked exhausted and cold into San Marino, <laughs> uh, and they drew nil-nil. They couldn't get a goal. Um, and then they took themselves on a trip to St. Lucia. They, the San Marino packed up, went to St. Lucia, and played St. Lucia right. twice, Brilliant. and managed to draw once and lose once. So I think it's fair to say that uh, Northern Ireland won't be quaking in their boots at the moment. Northern Ireland are missing a lot of senior players for this game, though, to, which may give San Marino a, a small glimmer of hope. Well, if it helps San Marino have had injury worries with their two best players as well, and I, and I use that very... <laughs> San Marino have got a striker who is, who is very good, Nani. He's, he's a very good striker. He's up and coming. And yeah, he's always injured. So it's, it's even San Marino's most lethal goal threat is, is probably going to be sort of not at his best. <laughs> Scotland play Cyprus. They kick off against Cyprus on Saturday, Barry. And uh, what's the remind people of how they are currently looking? In my mind, it's lots of amazing left backs. Well, Scotland are in a. They should have every reason to be optimistic at getting out of the group. They're in with Spain, Norway, Georgia, Cyprus. They play Cyprus at home on Saturday and then they're at home to Spain on Tuesday. Both games at Hamden. Scotland, I think, are in a decent position to qualify. And if they're, as I said, alluded to earlier, because they did so well in the Nations League, even if this group goes sideways for them, and I see no reason why it should. Obviously, Norway are a threat because they have Erling Haaland, uh, who has been ruled out of their two qualifiers in this break because of injury. But uh, they're a bit of a a one-man team, obviously. It's harsh on Odegaard, but fair. Okay, <laughs> two-man team. <laughs> uh, I forgot about Martin. Apologies. <laughs> but Scotland, if this group goes sideways for them, because they did so well in the Nations League, they are guaranteed a playoff spot for in these qualifiers. So Germany qualified because they're hosting. 20 qualifiers come out of the groups, and then three more come out of the Nations League playoffs, and Scotland are guaranteed a place in those playoffs. 
So um, I think they're pretty well placed to, to do well in this. Wales go to Croatia. Aaron Ramsey's the captain. Uh, they play on Saturday, Mark. Um, I mean, let's be honest, their World Cup was abysmal, wasn't it? And it was, it was just way down on, I think, what the hopes and expectations were of the fans as well. It was, yeah, for sure. Um, they relied on relied on Gareth Bale, who was unable really. Um, you know, his legs had, had gone by that point, and of course now um, retired. And even that, you know, Ramsey is captain, but I mean he needs to um, recover as well from what was a fairly poor World Cup by his standards. It's just a case, I think, of whether the next wave of younger players are ready to step up, not individually to replace. Gareth Bale, but maybe as a collective, they they could be a stronger team. But it it might just take a, a while for them. You know, I think there's big hopes for somebody like Brennan Johnson to, um, you know, to 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 deliver in time. But it is asking an awful lot to step into Gareth Bale's sort of shoes, and it's a tricky group because um, you know, Croatia, <laughs> Croatia have just kept all, nearly all of their players. Still, it's still Perisic, still got Modric. Uh, Lovren's retired, but you know this was a team that reached the World Cup semi-finals, and that Turkey might be dark horses this time around, man. That's <laughs> <laughs> um, Ireland's got Latvia in a friendly on Thursday. I mean, I guess the excitement is Evan Ferguson, isn't it? For for, and he does look such a tremendous player. Yeah, uh, that that's the story of this friendly. He will get his first start for Ireland. He he does look the real deal at Brighton. He's only eighteen. I think pretty much everyone's resigned to not qualifying already because we're in this awful group with the Netherlands and France. But there's always the the hope that either Netherlands or France or maybe even both of them could implode or have some disastrous campaign. It wouldn't be the first time. Uh, and Ireland have to be ready to take advantage if that happens. So they play Latvia Wednesday night and then they're... Uh, playing France on Monday, I think. And France and Netherlands have to play each other in the meantime. They they play on Friday, so that, that's an exciting game, which obviously we hope will end in a draw. And um, Barry as well, the, there's been a bit of disruption in the French camp, hasn't there, this week, because Kylian Mbappe has been named captain, and that apparently spoiled the birthday of Antoine Griezmann, who was hoping he was going to get the armband. I, I just wondered if we could get a cardboard cutout of Fiona Bruce or a message from Ethan Pinnock um, over to Antoine just to cheer him up. Dissension, dissent in the French ranks. Who could who could believe it? I mean, they are playing the Netherlands, who also will presumably fall out by the time this game happens and no one's talking to anyone. They, they already have. If you, have, you see Ronald Koeman, is, I mean, he's a grumpy guy at the best of times, but it is early press conference, he's back at the helm. Uh, and he basically spent the time saying how Jeremy Frimpong can't defend, uh, so he's not going to get picked. And he's picked, he's called up Ajax striker uh, Brian Bobby. He's called him up, and he's he's sort of not playing regularly at Ajax. So they asked him about this, and he basically said, "Yeah, you don't really want to call up a guy like this because you're not playing for Ajax." But <laughs> what am I going to do? I haven't got anyone else. So he gave this, this press conference. Just sounded absolutely <laughs> like he was on his last legs. So and this is his first That's press conference back. <laughs> it's amazing, and he's got no goalkeepers. No Zero. goalkeepers. Holland have not got that. Well, they've they haven't got any of their World Cup goalkeepers in this squad. So we've got three keepers, none of whom have really ever played. So yeah, honestly, they're in a, a bit of a mess themselves. <laughs> oh, that's fantastic. Uh, oh, well, that'll do for part one. Uh, part two, we'll begin with Roy Hodgson back at Selhurst Park. Uh, 
Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. Roy Hodgson, there's Shin, says uh, Roy to Palace, a stepping stone to the England job one day. Um, uh, yeah, he's been reappointed as Crystal Palace boss until the end of the season. I just don't think anyone would have expected Roy Hodgson to be there. At, so when at the start of the season, they go, this manager will be there, they'll be there, they'll be there. Roy Hodgson, you'll be there. he can't, there's no way he'll be there. Um, it's a privilege to be asked to return to the club, which has always meant so much to me. Our sole objective now is to start winning matches and to get the points necessary to ensure our Premier League status. Um, he is 75 years old, um, Paul. I imagine we, like a lot of outlets, have been a bit sort of sniffy slash patronising about his age. Is that, are we wrong to do that? He's, he's allowed to do this, isn't he? Um, he is allowed to do it. He's done the thing where you retire definitively, realise you haven't really got anything to do, and then regret it. And now he's, it, I think it's that. I think it's that he properly said, you know, this is it now. I think there was even sort of a moment where they had the sort of, did he do a guard of honour? Or he, he basically has definitively said, that's it for me. And now he's coming back. And I think that's the thing that feels weird about this one. Yeah, I, I just feel like it's not an inspiring appointment. I, I really respect and like Roy Hodgson. He's, you know, he's done wonderful things in the game. You, you can't dislike him, really, I don't think. But I don't feel my senses that Crystal Palace fans are seeing this as the bright new face that they, that they want to see right now. I also don't know that he's necessarily a grinded-out, keep-you-out-of-the-relegation-zone and then turn it over to another manager. I don't know. I mean, Watford was pretty much an impossible job that he took on, but he very much didn't pull it off. So He proved it I, was I impossible. Don't know. Didn't he? Yeah. he did. He did. He did. Even though Sepp Blatter, uh, of all people, said that he could do it, did he not? So I think he's, Sepp Blatter is weirdly friends with him. Yes. Carl says, how grateful will Roy be that he's been welcomed back to Palace by Sepp Blatter? Sepp's tweet said, dear Roy, welcome back, old chap. Good luck with your first love in football. Hashtag Roy Hodgson. Hashtag Crystal with CH Palace, hashtag England, hashtag the Eagles, hashtag Selhurst Park. How old is Sepp Blatter? So I just, I just, I just infinite hashtags. The infinite hashtags of Sepp Blatter. Uh, it's, it's tremendous. Um, Barry, what do you make of this appointment? I'm surprised by it. Look, Roy Hodgson, he didn't, he has great pedigree in the game, but his last three jobs haven't gone so well, have they? There was. He didn't do, he wasn't a good England manager. He did okay with Palace first time round, but towards the end, they won four of his last 16 games in charge. And then at Watford, he took over last January and only managed two wins out of 18 games. But what, Palace are 12th. The eight teams beneath them, they have to play each of them. So the 10 games left, eight of them are against te the teams who are beneath them. And then the other two, the, the good teams they have to play are probably going to be Fulham without Alexander Mitrovic and Tottenham, who, let's face it, aren't good. <laughs> so uh, I would give them every chance of staying up. And if they don't, if they can't stay up with that run of fixtures, then they will thoroughly deserve to go down and his appointment will be seen as a disaster. I suppose, Mark, if you, you know, you sort of talk, can a 75-year-old communicate with, you know, guys in their 20s? But I guess if a, if he could when he was 72, it doesn't make a huge difference. What, what if he's a huge success? He wins every game and they have to give him a five-year deal. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, with the, that was one of the problems with Antonio Conte, wasn't it? That, you know, the players knew he was going. Um, so I don't know how that works out with Crystal Palace. I mean, the, the problem 
I saw with Crystal Palace was that they were struggling to attack and that defensively, even in these really tough games, apart from you know, Arsenal was, was maybe um, sort of the exception to that, they, they defended well and looked organised, but couldn't sort of orchestrate enough attacking play to score goals. And, you know, Roy Hodgson's got some strengths, but that wouldn't be uh, one of them really in terms of being able um, you know, to make Palace better, um, you know, in the final third. I did um, lo- love one of the letters that came into the Football Daily email um, yesterday f- from The Guardian that said, no one is more critical of the government policies than me. But my goodness, the Chancellor only announced his plan to get retirees back into the workforce <laughs> last Wednesday and it's already working. Um, so I, I think that the, the thing with Hodgson was that, for, from my opinion, was just, he looked like he was retiring when he was what you know, when he was Watford coach those last few months. It didn't look like he was that bothered by it. Now maybe that's being unfair, um, but just on the touchline, it looked like he was sort of counting down the days until retirement. So I, I just whether he's got that energy um, that I, I think Palace need and the connection with the fa- Selhurst Park. I always think it's a, you know, it can be a horrible place for a, a opposing team visiting teams to go. And I just feel like a kind of a manager with an energy can kind of get that crowd going. And I'm not sure that Hodgson, despite his connection to the club, has got that energy. You think Roy's not going to make it welcome to hell, is he? <laughs> uh, no one called Roy could do that, really, could they? Um, uh, now, Antonio Conte, watch, um, uh, widely being reported, I think Matt Law uh, had the story in The Telegraph, uh, saying that Spurs are expected to sack Conte this week. Uh, I'm not really sure why they haven't already. As producer Joel says, feels like when a couple break up, but they they keep living together for, you know, who gets the house, who gets the cat. I'll, I'll go back to you actually first, Mark, with your Spurs hat on. Firstly, about Conte and what you've made of this and, and then on a possible successor, because you probably will know the pedigree of the names that are being mentioned. Amarin, Glasner, Enrique, Tuchel, Pochettino best of all of us. Yeah, I mean, first of all, on, on Conte, um, I've been really disappointed with his football this season. Um, last year, I, I enjoyed it. Um, he, he got the team to fourth. They were playing very aggressively. He's now asking the players to show commitment and desire and, and all these, and he hasn't been showing that himself for, for months. Um, there's been a disconnect between him and most of the squad. Um, everybody's known you know, probably since I, I think there was some maybe discussions around the World Cup time as to whether he would stay on. Um, he, you know, he, he clearly wasn't. He, his family still live in Italy. That's fine. He wants to go. Um, but then I think it's very difficult to ask the players to, you know, to, to run through walls for you when you know, you're not going to be there. And, and that they see that as uh, maybe it is an excuse and maybe he was right about some of the things he said, but the responsibility to change that lies with him. And that's why he's paid 15 million pounds a year to, um, to to bring about a changing culture and and you know all the things he was bemoaning from the dressing room and um, you know he's kind of just set the club alight and just wants to walk away which I you know I know that that is seen as Conte style but I I think that it's really just from a fan point of view very disappointing to sort of see that he's he's done that and shown a complete sort of lack of respect I think for the club it was only last week he was having a go at the fans and said they 
lacked patience. Um, when I think they've been incredibly patient with the football um, that's been served up. And I did see somebody say that his, his press conference last week was the first time he'd successfully orchestrated an attack all season, <laughs> um, which I think was, was a really, was a really nice line. Um, in terms of, in terms of replacements, the fan in me would like to see Pochettino come back. I think he's got, you know, he's got respect for the club, the connection with, um, with, with, with everybody last time around was, was amazing. And I know that they didn't win a trophy, but it, it just felt fun to be there, you know, just every week, um, essentially for, for most of that time, even when you're having to troops to Wembley and, you know, it was a, a difficult time to, to not have a home stadium. And just the emotion he showed when he reached sort of the Champions League final, um, you know, you just, you just see that, that there was a real sort of love, um, it felt like for the club. The kind of neutral journalist in me thinks that it might be a bad idea for Pochettino to come back for, for, for both and that a clean break is, is the right thing to do. And, you know, you should look for the next Pochettino rather than, um, you know, just bring back Pochettino. Um, it sounds like Paratici, First choice is Luis Enrique, and I'm not even sure what Paratici's doing, sort of, you know, picking the next manager because I don't think he should be at the club um, either. Um, I would, I would be very nervous about Luis Enrique. He hasn't managed a club team for for quite some time, and the last, you know, when he was at Barcelona, it's a completely different sort of job to 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 what he's going to be walking into if it were to be him at Tottenham. I think Glasner has done very well at Eintracht Frankfurt. Plays aggressive front foot. Um, football does play with a back three, so the wing backs that they bought, Adoji and you know Pedro Porro, would be able to play in that system. I think the football that Amarim plays with Sporting is is an absolute delight, and he would he would maybe be sort of my first choice. I think if I was kind of looking at it really objectively rather than with my fan hat view. Paul, some other internationals that we haven't looked at because we we're too folk we're too Eurocentric, we're too focused on the big sides. I did see. New Zealand are playing China twice on Thursday and Sunday in a double header. Um, <laughs> Iran play the Football Union of Russia, and Georgia play Mongolia. But I don't know. I don't know where. Take us where you want to take us. See, see I'm I'm very biased. So yeah, Georgia Mongolia stands out for me, and it's because obviously uh, I accidentally owned a club in Mongolia for a little while, so I have a vested interest. But also, it's their first ever game against European opposition, Mongolia, and until quite recently, they didn't have an indoor football facility not an 11 a side pitch so they were they would always struggle whenever the winter came if they had an international in in a cold place they would always lose uh sorry wrong way around if they had an international in a hot place they'd always lose because it was so cold in mongolia they weren't used to playing in heat but actually they've come a hell of a long way since they've got like um a lot more of a, a setup there a lot better training facilities and this is yeah their first ever test against european opposition they lost 14 nil to japan mongolia in 2021 march 2021 but they've actually improved a lot lately. Um, this this is going to push them <laughs> very hard, but I'll be interested to see how they get on. And the other one, the other game that I've got eyes on this weekend, which I think you can almost call international, is um, it's the Marathi, uh, the Channel Islands football competition. And I, I think a All lot right. of people know Jersey and Guernsey play every year for sort of bragging rights of the Channel Islands. But um, the Marathi also the Bergerac Cup. <laughs> the, <believe> yeah. <laughs> now that would be, it was, it was Jersey, wasn't he? So that'd be very inflammatory. In I, I'm not, not yeah. entirely sure it would be really. Yes. Yeah, they have a semi-final, and a lot of people don't know. So Alderney play in the semi-final every year. So Alderney always play one of Jersey or Guernsey. It rotates in Alderney, 
and the winner goes through to play the final against the other one to Jersey and Guernsey. Uh, and Alderney are about to play Jersey uh, on Saturday. Uh, and Alderney haven't won a match since 1920. So they play every... Oh. I mean, there have been... Granted, there's been a few years off with the German occupation uh, back in, obviously, the Second World War and COVID, but they are over 100 now straight games in this competition without without a win. But it's always been quite close lately. They, they've lost the last few 2-0. They lost 2-1 the other year. But it's an amazing thing. Um, I, went, I was lucky enough to go. And uh, it's a brilliant atmosphere. And it's just such a, such a typically... Like, it's very unique, but it's a very sort of... Um, slightly ironic feel to it that this, these guys all come out pour out and then lose and then pour out and then one year they will get this win and it will it will be amazing <laughs> i noticed that burundi were due to play indonesia away and kenya away on friday which seems very difficult um i checked and the fastest you could get you could play jakarta first thing and then get on a 17-hour flight via doha to nairobi the cheapest is you go. You have to go Melindo Air to Kuala Lumpur and then Air Arabia via Sharjah to Nairobi. You'd have to check in twice. So you'd have to take all your luggage off and check in for the second and third leg of the flight. So I don't think it's feasible for Burundi to play both those games. Um, Kenny says, who has the best micro cup kit? Tell us about the micro cup, Paul, please. Ah, right. Yes. Yeah. So the micro cup is... Um, Federated States Micronesia, which is where I started my career, I guess you could say. I coached their national football team. Um, and they are hosting the first ever futsal competition in Micronesia between the four islands that make up the nation, which are separated by two of them, are separated by 2,000 kilometers. So, um, Micronesia it's one of six nations on earth that aren't recognized by FIFA Federation, and they've been trying for about 20 years to get recognition. Um, and so the idea is to start playing futsal because uh, teams can afford to actually travel between the islands. So that's taking place in July. And uh, to finance it, we got uh, shirts made for these four islands. And one of them, Koshrai, has never had a football team uh, before. In fact, it didn't have a football when they entered the competition, um, which, was, <laughs> which was very like... Very ambitious. Um, so that is that's so good. Has anyone got a ball? The WhatsApp groups. Anyone got a ball? I've got I've got a pump, but I haven't. To got a genuinely ball. messaged them and oh, said, amazing. like, you know, what what have you got on the island? He said, well, we had a football, but we can't find it. Now we're we <laughs> could we use basketballs for the short term? Is the question. Um, so yeah, this these for example, this island Koshrai, tiny little island, uh, never had a team before, and they've got these beautiful shirts. And this Koshrai shirt is it's got this unique bird to Koshrai on it, and it's red and black made by a company called stings uh, who make these beautiful unique shirts and um it's been selling all around the world we've had like 200 people buy it um it's become very big in parts of france uh we've got loads of french orders for it for reasons i can't understand and these guys on this tiny little island in micronesia are um sort of baffled but but really happy about it and um the shirt sales are all funding the flights that will make the tournament happen they're doing good things paul uh where can people get them the kit because the kits are cool i've bought one they're, they're really cool. They're really cool. You can either um, get them from me uh, at Paul underscore C underscore Watson. Actually, that's probably the easiest way on, on Twitter. Um, we also, I am co-host of another podcast. Sorry to flirt with. Uh, no, tell us all about <laughs> um, it. Please. So I co-host a podcast uh, called The Sweeper with uh, Lee Wingate. And that's um, about sort of the more extreme outposts of football. Although we do also dally in italy and holland and if there's an interesting story in that kind of place but there's a lot of like a lot of micronesia moldova 
Malta and just the really kind of weird, interesting stories that, that we find there. So that's called the Sweeper Podcast. And if you look at for Sweeper Pod uh, on Twitter, then uh, you'll find me or Lee. And we recently did a competition to win one of the shirts, which actually is closed, but we might be able to find another one. <laughs> All right, that'll do for part two. Part three, Susie Rack will join us. We'll talk about the Newsnight story about the Afghan women footballers who escaped the Taliban. Welcome to part three of the Guardian Football Weekly. Let's talk about uh, that Newsnight story surrounding the Afghanistan uh, women's football team uh, in the company of Susie Rack, who's uh, en route to Leon, I presume. You're at Gatwick Airport for the uh, the Champions League game. We'll get into that in a bit. Hey, Susie, how are you? I am good, thanks. Currently hanging around outside very posh shops because they look quite a... Absolutely. Well, well, what shop are you outside? What's the one right in front of you? Oh, Harrods. Oh, good. I didn't know there was a Harrods at Gatwick. Anyway, look, um, uh, on to more important matters. Um, to quickly bring listeners up to speed on this story, in November 2021, 35 women and their families, 130 people in total, escaped from Afghanistan over the border to Pakistan, were flown to the UK from there. Uh, women footballers were deemed at risk from the Taliban for participating in a sport the new regime saw as un-Islamic. They were granted visas by the Home Office. Susie, you wrote extensively about this at the time. Um, and I remember it being seen as nothing other than a story about making sure these women and their families were safe, which is assume how you viewed it at the time. I worked with Craig Foster, who did amazing work getting uh, some footballers to Australia as well. And then last week, there was a, a report from the BBC, um, an investigation stating that a number of the players were not top tier players had been claimed at the time. This is from the BBC's investigation. The BBC spoke to a number of former Afghan players, coaches and officials who identified 13 individuals who they believed were not members of the teams listed. Many of the evacuees were described as members of the Herat youth team. But Newsnight tracked down the team's former coach who now works in women's football in Italy. He says that when he saw the list of people who were evacuated, he wondered if some of them had ever visited the Herat football ground, let alone played for the national team. I've seen people in the list who have not even worn a football strip in Herat. I mean, I guess the reaction from a lot of people, Susie, has been like people escaping the Taliban. Why would anybody care if they weren't international footballers or not? I mean, I think that's the biggest response, right? It's a big, like, so what to a certain extent? There's women that have got out of a particularly anti-women regime to freedom to a certain extent in not very nice conditions and not necessarily in particularly nice conditions now either. So to, to a certain extent, what does it matter if they can kick a ball or not. The biggest issue is that they've already been targeted when they've been in, while they've been in the UK, uh, where they're based up north in Doncaster. It's put a bit more of a target on their back, which is really harsh when, you know, they're grappling pretty horrific, emotional, mental battles of, you know, we got out, but our teammates didn't, or you know, we got out, but our families didn't. Real kind of complex emotions there and, and very, very traumatised individuals, as you can imagine. And the idea that there was any kind of pretense that these were somehow senior national team players is really quite ridiculous. When, as you said, you know, there's a team that got out to Australia that was very widely publicised as the senior women's national team, right? So there was never any any kind of... Uh, pretense that this was anything other than a team of young developmental players. Um, Afghanistan women's football is, as you can imagine, an extremely complicated system where it's not clubs that compete in the in the national league. It's uh, like provincial teams, development teams. 
that both compete in the league and then feed into the national team. So it's like a real complex system that I don't think everyone fully kind of understands. And so these, you know, these players that are in the north of England are a mixture of players from those provincial teams, which are the best players from the clubs in the in those provinces, and some club players. And I mean, obviously, women's football in Afghanistan is a much smaller room, but you're basically saying, you know, this Italian coach who probably has all the best women in the world looks at a list and goes, "These some of these aren't my players. Doesn't mean they're not players for other teams. It was just individuals, mainly working for, well, entirely working for free, uh, relying on, you know, contacts and friends and, you know, a network of people within football and human rights and law to to help try and get some women out the women would approach them themselves with their documentation would find their photos it's even more complicated because obviously some of them were like burning their shirts and any record of them having been a footballer but for fear of the Taliban who were going door to door looking for uh, looking for them at one stage particularly the, the most high profile ones so you've got this really difficult situation where you've got some who aren't going to have the best documentation because they've burnt some of it. But, you know, it's a real, you know, kind of minefield, basically trying to operate in the Wild West. No one was in charge of it. No one took charge of it. So, it's yeah, it's just, it's sad because it, it feeds an anti-refugee narrative that, that really doesn't need feeding um, in a really horrible way. Um, and these are particularly vulnerable women, some with family members still in the country, some, you know, kind of got to the gates of... Um, uh, uh, like of the airport or the border to Pakistan and sort of had to make the decision of whether to stay in the country with their families or leave their families behind um, and you know these are some really traumatised individuals. On the question of why they conducted this investigation the BBC report says there's resentment amongst genuine players now living under Taliban rule in Afghanistan that others appear to have got out with false credentials one who wishes to remain anonymous tells Newsnight the Taliban have banned sports for women and girls. We're left behind in Afghanistan with no future. It just makes me feel very neglected and very sad because we're the real players and not some of those that got evacuated. Susie, I I haven't seen the Newsnight piece, but uh, I've seen you and others sort of deride it as being hugely irresponsible. Can I ask if they approached you or any of your colleagues for comment? Yeah, no, I was never approached for any comment, or which surprised me a little bit because obviously I've covered this story so extensively for such a long time um, and have connections to most of those teams, a lot of those players, a lot of the people that worked on the evacuation to get them out. You know, at one stage I was sat in the house of someone in London who was helping lead the evacuation on the phone to people in the US, Australia, Denmark, you know, you name it, and watching what was going on sort of live as that evacuation was taking place. Um, seen a lot of the documentation and stuff. Um, I had had a few people come to me with questions about the validity of the team as football players back in, I want to say, December 21, around the time that Daily Mail ran a sort of vaguely similar story. I asked questions. I asked for evidence. In these situations, there's a lot of people with a lot of vested interest, you know, people who didn't get their families out, people who asked for help for their families and couldn't get it people who um, couldn't necessarily get out of themselves because they didn't want to leave without their families. All these kind of complicated, like, vested interests and uh, and scenarios that have built up a lot of, like, frustrations at different people, at different organisations that aren't totally 100% reliable. A lot of stories that change as you speak to people and things. And so weedling out what is real and what is not is extremely difficult, but then it is 
you know, a war zone scenario. A number of people on Twitter made reference to, you know, Jewish kids being evacuated from uh, Germany. Like it's it's that level of chaos. Do you then start kind of how how deeply do you do you do you dig into the the claims of women getting out of the country of whether they're footballers or not when there's um, you know, a huge number of other reasons why a lot of these women can't necessarily stay in the country. You know, there's some some will be gay, some will be of um, various different ethnic ethnic minorities um, that, are, that are now being persecuted in the area. Like, there's a huge array of reasons as to why people had legitimate claims to get out of the country. And being a footballer, like that, may seem a little bit trivial, but some of these players obviously were very very high profile very uh, public facing it was very clearly uh, you know an anti-taliban ideologically uh, like driven act to play football so you were sort of being uh, very much a feminist in playing football so then you've got that tied to you as well so there's so many people who like I mean pretty much every woman in Afghanistan right has a right to asylum pretty much anywhere in the world on the basis of the state of the situation for them at the moment so I just regardless of the story regardless of whether it's true or not the idea that we're sort of somehow deciding the worthiness of people and that that is then pitting players against each other as well and women against each other from within the country is like extremely sad right like that's not uh, that's not something you want to see uh when every single person every single woman in Afghanistan, every single ethnic minority or like every single um, minority that goes against the Taliban ideology in some way deserves to get out. Mm. I mean, I guess that's it. If you put yourself in the, the shoes of anyone trying to get out of Afghanistan, I presume they were, you know, and, and, and if somebody said, oh, look, if you're a footballer, you can get out. Then a female footballer, you can get out. Then a female footballer is not, and you can get your, you might be able to get your family out. They're not going to go, well, actually, you know, I'm not as good. I'm not that good. You're just going to tick that box, right? That's what would happen in that scenario, right? Any, if there's any reason you could try and get your family out, you would try anything to do it. it you know, exactly that. Yeah. And anyone escaping like war zones throughout history have, you know, lied to get out, have forged documents to get out. You know, that is like a common thread. So I think to blame anyone who is receiving information that looks legitimate and goes and passes it on and to governments and says, look, can you help this person? And then leaves up to governments to decide whether that person is allowed asylum or not. That, you know, how, how, how could anyone possibly judge anyone for that, for trying to get out and flee somewhere so dangerous? And, you know, that's one of the, that's, I think one of the big risks to these women is they've all got pending asylum claims ongoing. You know, they're being, uh, they're going through the proper process in the UK for the right to stay here. The fact that, you know, they're kind of being pulled up in the court of public opinion for being uh, like good at football or not is like somewhat irrelevant and also doesn't do their, you know, the kind of public perception of them any good when they've got all these pending asylum claims going on, which is the way things should happen, right? Like it should go through the proper process. Yeah. Um, In response to questions from The Guardian, a BBC spokesperson said they've taken care not to identify anyone who's not previously been identified as a, quote, genuine footballer in other media. They said the investigation came after Newsnight was contacted by a former female footballer still in Afghanistan. Uh, They said, we've considered the concerns of people mentioned in the story and removed them, even if their names are still used in other media, such as The Guardian. Um, I don't know what you make of that, Susie, before we let you go. Yeah, I mean, it's it's disappointing. Um, You know, we did a story about the team arriving in England 
back in like sort of late 2020 early 2021 which was um very much you know a story of them escaping horrors right real traumas um it we named three players because we interviewed them but in the newsnight piece they're being named in a very very different context it's not a good thing to be naming players in that context regardless of whether they've been named in the press before in my mind and that just seems like a little bit of a red herring for the complete sort of battering um newsnight has got since running the story and since the bbc put it online as well which has basically generally been why are you hammering women fleeing a war zone and that that's that's the crux of it right like that's what it boils down to yeah and you know for the bbc not not the best timing either but anyway uh, while we've got you Susie, um Arsenal lost one to Bayern in the Champions League. Great header by Leah Schiller, actually. It was a good game, and Arsenal went so close in the second half. Did enough to suggest that that tie is very much alive. Slightly, the manager was slightly, Jonas Odevel, slightly annoyed by no goal on technology at one leg and not at the other, and VAR just coming in. Yeah, I think that's legitimate in that, like, it, it's uneven, right? Like, Arsenal are going to pay for goal line technology at the Emirates. Bayern Munich decided not to pay for it. Um, at the Allianz when it's, you know, it's equipped for it, um, which is not great. I mean, it should be ruled that that is a part of it, right? But ultimately, if the ball has crossed the line far enough, then you don't have that problem. So the moaning to a certain extent is a bit of a deflection, I think, to take away from the fact that they weren't able to get the ball decisively in the back of the net to a certain extent. Uh, Two decent penalty shouts. I mean, criticism of VAR is probably relatively fair. Um, It's so rarely used in women's football really you know only is introduced at this stage of the Champions League at the knockout stage and uh, in major international competitions so like how well it's utilised and like how well it's implemented is a big question and then also how well and how used to play how how used to it players are is another question as well which makes it a little bit not unfair because they're all you know in these games for example they're all like dealing with the same the same situation but um, it just needs, I suppose, a little bit, a little bit more thought. But I mean, ultimately, if Arsenal score, it's not an issue, is it? And he's not, he's not saying any of those things, so it's much of a muchness. No, absolutely right. Um, well, enjoy the game tonight, uh, Leon Chelsea, and uh, and we'll chat to you soon. Cheers, Susie. Catch you later. Thanks, bye. Susie Rack there, uh, the Guardian Women's Football Correspondent. Uh, On to a, a brief. Any other business? Fairness says, is the Lord Panic? representing Boris Johnson, the same one who represents Manchester City. And will the Tories be borrowing uh, the Manchester City fans' banner of uh, panic on the streets of London? Uh, Well, we'll find out later today, won't we, if there's a big set of... Maybe City fans now support Lord Panic, so they'll be behind Boris Johnson in that room when he's blustering away. Uh, Fred says, uh, cut to the chase here, which are the three best butter countries, according to Mark? Um, and has Paul tried any exotic butters on his travels? Yak milk butter from Bhutan, for instance, is yak milk really pink? Well, we'll, we'll, we'll deal the question in order. What are the three best butter countries, Mark? Oh, if, if I don't say Ireland for, for number one, we, we, I'm, you know, it's going to be, it'd be difficult if I ever go back. So I will go. I'll go for Ireland um, as number one. French butter is high quality, um, in my opinion. Um, 
they would be really the only two outside of UK ones that I would I would go to. I mean, I'm sure Paul has um, tasted some some much more adventurous, but I'm I'm struggling to go. I mean, I, I'd probably go Ireland, then then France, maybe UK third. Interesting. Okay. Um, no, I can't offer any. <laughs> <laughs> Can't offer any brilliant butters. I'll say in Mongolia they put butter in absolutely everything. Like the tea, if you if you order tea, you get a cup of milk with butter in it, and when you first drink it, it's mm. just it's like a heart attack in a cup. And then actually, as you live there a little bit, you come to really enjoy it. And finally, Mark, um, to cross the streams, you were on uh, the radio with me on Saturday, and as you left, I mentioned to Charlie Baker that you didn't eat vegetables. But sort of, it didn't feel right to bring it up during the chat. I don't know why we were doing some serious football type thing. And then, and what what ensued from that? So, so I went to see my mum later on um, that Saturday. And um, she starts going on about, was, you know, was you on talk sport um, today? I said, you know, it's, it's not that unusual. We'll go on occasionally. She said, oh, one of my friends um, messaged me and said um, that um, your son was on talk sport and um, that the presenter said he doesn't eat vegetables. <laughs> um, and sort of my mum then, then um, brought up to me that as a baby, my favourite meal was peas and Brussels. Wow. Um, just just peas and Brussels. And there was a time when that, that was all I would eat. I don't remember um, this time, but maybe that has kind of ruined it for me that I, I just became so sick of it as a as, as, as a young nipper that it's... Um, maybe you ate enough. Maybe you just ate enough, okay. didn't you, in that yeah. time? <laughs> and, and now it's carrying, yeah, it's, it's carrying me on for, for the rest of my life. Yeah. You've got latent... Pea and broccoli just within, and it's absolutely fine. Oh, marvellous. Well, you know, um, uh, hello to your mother, Mark. Uh, all right, that'll do for uh, today's pod. Uh, thanks so much, Paul. Thank you very much. Thanks, Barry. Thank you. Thanks, Mark. Cheers, Max. Uh, we're going to record Thursday's pod after the England-Italy game, so uh, it'll be out very late on Thursday or early on Friday. Football Weekly was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer is Danielle Stephen. This is The Guardian.